So I gave a, a Dharma talk last month, which focused on my recent practice, and so today um, my talk is going to focus on how my practice has evolved over time, and a theme will be the role of confidence in practice, and several years ago I, uh, in Dharma talk, I talked about the role of confidence in practice, and confidence is a word that really became central to me just in, in my teaching, and has proved very helpful to me. Um, but I'm going to be emphasizing very different things than two years ago, and I'll sort of um, uh, share like the ideas from Buddhism that I struggled with and how I made sense of them and sort of worked through my struggles and sort of understanding them. And uh, I'll throw the caveat out there that uh, what ended up working for me might not be helpful for others or might not be... Uh, you know, precisely effective descriptions of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, perhaps they are, um, but uh, take them for uh, the degree in which they're helpful. And if not helpful, say, well, I'm glad that works for John. Uh, okay, so a quick storyline so you can um, uh, understand the context of what I share. So I uh, first started practicing in uh, 1994, and then I, I just did a large... A, a number of sashins over a five-year period. And then the last one, more extended one I did, was in 1998, which was a seven-day retreat. And it was a... I did something that you're not supposed to do. I actually would write in a journal every day, which you're not supposed to do during sashin, and I was a bad attendee. Yeah. Um, uh, and as I share with you, maybe that caused some of the struggles I had, the reflections in it, there's one silver lining that I got to look back to my 21-year-old, go back to 21 years and be like, what was going on in his head? So that was, I guess, the silver lining to it, but this is not approved practice. Uh, and But since the damage was done, I might as well see what I can reap from it. Um, but anyway, it was interesting because I hadn't read it for 21 years. And uh, to extend out a little bit, um, right after this uh, retreat, like there was an, a 10-year period where um, my, I didn't practice as much. And in my mind, I had a uh, narrative that, uh, uh, oh, these, stru- these questions I had in, during this machine um, uh, really you know, caused me to lose large amounts of confidence. But actually, the, I think the final, I'll read the final paragraph to it is, uh, right, I'll read you the final paragraph. However, I am still very fascinated with meditation in the direction which Buddhism points towards. I don't have the intellectual framework to replace no-self, but I'm not sure I need one. The only thing I am certain of is that the quality of my life is much higher when I practice regularly. So it doesn't sound like my confidence was completely shaken 21 years ago, but in my mind it felt more like that. So it was kind of interesting to read that. Uh, I think the story was the next 10 years my life was really, really busy. You know, early career... uh, kids being born, family tragedies, that sort of thing. Um, this. But there were things I was struggling in it, and I'll share. I think there was ways that my confidence was affected, and uh, which related to struggling. And as you heard there, I was talking about this framework of no self. And I'll get to maybe a better framework, not self, but at that time I was thinking of it as no self. Um, perhaps because the My teacher at the time emphasized it because that's the way I was interpreting it. I'm not sure. And I really would would struggle with this, and this is not, 
you know, some new unique struggle with people raised in the U.S. encountering Buddhism. Um, and I, I would sort of think of uh, sort of two things, right? So you, you, you know, as the confidence builds, you have this thing saying, oh, there's this thing, there's this consciousness I have, this attention I have, and it can be placed on all sorts of things, sights, you know, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, in, internal things, thoughts, um, uh, emotions, which is common. I can do all this, but it's also this thing that can have, it's, it can have an absence of anything going on for moments, which is rare, but it, it happens. And there's idea that, you know, um, I have this, this consciousness that is empty of all of those objects I could place attention on, right? And Mito has a consciousness that could be empty on all this. And at its purest sense, there's no real difference. There's just these objects that we can, you know, attach to and cling to, but that's not us. That's not a self. That's not this. You know, I, I started to understand that and see all sorts of value in my life because when I start having dramas in my head, like the world's unfair to me, this person's being mean to me, this, I would say, well, like, those aren't my thoughts. Those are just thoughts coming up. And boy, is that a just helpful way to do it. And like these emotions, well, that's just an emotion. Like, I don't have to attach to it. I can watch it with distance, right? Very helpful. That's why I think mindfulness is to a degree, you know, in a, in a very secular form, you know, expanding. But then I would really struggle with it because, I, you know, this is the stuff I was writing. I say, okay, but there's no self. If I take that very literally, and that's completely true, there's no self. If we're sitting around a fire and my foot gets placed in the fire and my nose <laughs> foot isn't placed in the fire, right? We both have this pure consciousness. They're different. But my consciousness experiences pain and her consciousness doesn't. Maybe she has empathy. But if she's not looking at me and doesn't notice I'm doing it, she doesn't accept. So how could there not be? There's a self because like, my foot hurts. Her foot doesn't hurt. Like there's this. So I was like saying, well, the, what, what does that mean, right? And then I was also having the experience of sitting, and uh, you know, you, if you sit an extended period of time, your concentration deepen, deepens. You have these moments where there doesn't feel like there's a John there. And at times it could be nice. At times it can be kind of like disorienting. Like, well, uh, and earlier, like, well, how am I going to now go function in the world? There's no John here. They're going to say, hey, John, and I'm just going to sit here. And how's this going to work, right? How, how am I going to go live in the normal life, right? And so this is the, the thing about, like, when I think about it intellectually, um, I'm like, I don't know if I do it. And I think, but what if it really, I fully experience this no self thing? How do I function in the world? Um, and so, you know, as you saw from this paragraph, right, I still saw the, the value, like, even though I didn't understand this, this idea of no self, I said, boy, um, just having a lighter self is sure helpful because I don't get caught up in my thoughts and emotions. And I then have less dukkha, whether it's suffering, whether it's unsatisfactoriness, whether it's feeling unfulfilled. And, um, it also just makes me, you know, less consumed with my own well-being and there might be moments where I consider other people's well-being more. And so I said, I still see the value of this, but I, I don't really believe in this no self idea. And for whatever reason, I, I was sticking on that both because of like, I couldn't understand it intellectually. And then I had this like concern about, well, what if I meditate forever and then I'm just can't function in the world. 
so anyway, that was the, those were the random ramblings in my diary at that time, uh, which I shouldn't have been keeping, which perhaps I wouldn't have been ran, ran, rambling, but uh, there you go. Um, uh, you know, so what happened was I had confidence in the practice in a day-to-day thing, but then I started thinking I had this belief uh, that, you know, if I just practiced really hard and I saw all these sessions, I would have this moment where I would just have true enlightenment and then just have deep peace until eternity or whenever I passed away. I'm not sure how that worked. Uh, and I think that was because I first perhaps got interested in all this by reading Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. I just reread that again. I reread it like every 10 years. And uh, that's what happens in the book, right? The characters, all of a sudden they're looking at the river and they hear all these sounds in the river and then true peace forever from here. And it's like, all right, I sat by rivers a lot back then. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe the state is this disorient. I started having states and then disoriented. And what would it, um, uh, you know, what would it be? Uh, and so I lost the confidence that there was this, this thing, what we call it enlightenment or whatever, this thing out there I would attain, right? And that, that I was clinging to obtaining and all this. Uh, so I still saw the practice, the utility of it, but I lost that. And so I thought that maybe affected at least, I don't know if you call it my confidence, but the urge to sit. And when life gets really complicated, like what gets you to the cushion, what gets you to the zendo, um, that was it. And so that was about a 10 year period then where I would sit from time to time. I still saw the value, but I didn't have a push towards it. And then 2009, I came to on at the same time that my life was becoming a little simpler, but also I, I came to state college. My life was getting a simpler. I felt like, you know, that I saw all this value in this when I was doing it more regularly. I should do it more regularly. It just so happens that there's this thing called Oan Zendo, which was, it was really fun when I was on the web. I said, oh, my, look at that. And so I start coming here. Uh, and Michael may remember I got here and I kept asking. I was like, I don't know. And my confidence was kind of there. And so how do I work through it? And so between, you know, uh, talking with Mido and then just listening to Dharma talks from time to time, I sort of said, oh, I can kind of make sense of like the intellectual frame. I, I kind of came to, I guess, three, three things that helped me make sense of it. The first is this idea of, well, why am I fixating on this concept of no self, right? Isn't a better way to think about it is not self. And is it maybe not that Buddhism saying, or at least it's helpful to me when I interpret it as Buddhism saying, that it's not that there is no such thing as a self because yeah, like if my foot's in the fire, I experiencing it, but that the thing of the self is just an intellectual framework, right? It's not a thing that exists. It's that I think in this thing and there's this thing called John Cheslock and, uh, and it kind of is a thing because my foot's in the fire. I feel it. Uh, other people don't. Uh, and that's a helpful perspective to have because I don't want to have a brute foot. And if you say John, I want to say yes. And if you ask me to do something, I want to get up and do it if it's a good thing to do. So, yes. So, come walking around in the world, using an intellectual framework of the self from time to time is helpful. It helps you navigate it. But at other times, it's not the right framework to have, right? At other times, um, it obscures things that are perhaps the most precious things of being alive, right? Because if you're only working with the framework all the time of self, 
you miss the interconnectedness of our experience, right? Because you can also think like, it's not just this John Cheslock shaping what I do, it's the world shaping what I do, and they're just as connected to me as what's going on in here. And there, I can come up with a framework that separates it, but it's all very interconnected, right? And there's this web that connects us, this non-difference that is present, uh, that is really important. Uh, and right, so the third thing I'm gonna say, but I start saying, okay, what is this? And then I just heard random, random, you know, I, I uh, various, there's so many Dharma talks on the web now. One time I just picked one that was by Gil Fronsdale and it was all about Anatta, the idea of the self. He, uh, Gil Fronsdale's good because he does Zen and Vipassana, which is the two traditions I do. He's done both and so he, he speaks both uh, at the same time a lot of times. But he used the metaphor of a fist as a self. And he says, does a self exist? And then he says, well, does a fist exist? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And so... Uh, the thing is, this is not self, this is not a fist that's permanent, but I can create a fist if it's helpful, I want to hold on to the thing in my hand. And then I say, oh, well that makes sense then. Yeah, like, you say, hey John, and I'll say yes. And then, there's not a moment where I need to be a self and taking care of things, and I can be in this and experience that. And so for me, that just, that metaphor just, now, I just do this, and <laughs> this makes sense, so... <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, that, that sort of took care of it. And then we get to the second point, which is it's not that important to come up with some overarching intellectual framework to like make sense of it. I don't have to come up with some framework that's the truth because all the frameworks are not going to be the truth because no framework explains at all. And the only time I feel close to the truth is the moment when I'm not engaged in an intellectual framework and I'm quiet and there's an intuitive sense. That feels closer to the truth than anything I can achieve through just thinking through it all, which you read in the teachings all the time, but I started to really get it. Um, and the real insight comes from the practice and the experience, not from the ideas. And so there's actually a point in here where I start saying, well, I'm going to write out my new framework. And then I was like, oh, but the bell just rang. I started writing it out. And then I came back and I said, I just decided to just stop this and just focus on my breath. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was a good idea. <laughs> but, you know... But I was really trying to think I had to have some framework that explained it all. And like all the frameworks are incomplete and use them sometimes, do it. And there's lots of frameworks you can use. And uh, and so anyway, that was my thing is I just stopped caring so much about having some teacher give me a framework that explains everything. It explains both understanding the deep connection that we all share and also explains if my foot's in the fire, what do I do? Right? I don't, I can use two frameworks for that. Uh, but that's not the point of the teaching is to have some one framework that explains everything. And then the final thing is to think about this idea of what sort of happens. This idea like, if I sit really hard, I'll just, I won't be able to function in the world. Like, what's, what happens when you just sit really, really for a super long time? Like, what happens? You just, you know, you have great depth, but you can't engage the world. And again, a, a random talk that came, this one by Christopher Titmus, where he, he sort of was explaining non-duality, the non-difference of all things. Um, and uh, and he, he you know, sort of explained it in a very helpful way that, again, like, you know, we're, we're caught up in this subject. I am this subject, experiencing these objects, and it's all about this subject, John. And when you can just get away from that idea of this subject, which is a guy resting in non-self to a degree, but the non-duality 
the non-difference of all things, the interconnected web that we experience, that the, what happens is not that when someone says, John, you're, you just sit there and you can't function. What actually, he says, what's amazing about the practice is you know when that's experiencing, what confirms to you that it's experiencing is that love arises, which sort of makes sense because when you don't have non-duality, like your experience and your experience and my experience are all equally important, right? And love a lot of times is caring about others as much as you naturally care about yourself. And so that's the practice is, that's when you know the practice is happening a lot of times that the love arises. Whether or not that fully works, love doesn't always arise for me. It, when I practice, it does more. But that gave me, a, you know, okay, the intellectual framework stuff I was getting mixed up in, but oh, if I practice, like I'm confident where it will go. Like I'm not worried about not being able to function. Yes, you can have a few moments that are confusing, but that's what the practice brings out. And so it sort of then produced this conference. Um, it produced this confidence and it produced in terms of desire to practice more because you see, oh, that's what's there. Beyond just the practical everyday helpfulness of mindfulness and meditation, uh, that's the, the thing it's towards. And I no longer have this feeling that I'm going to be sitting by a river and all the voices in the river will come to me and I'll have deep peace from there on out. Uh, as I said in the last talk, I do have this feeling like there'll be small moments many times like small moments where I can feel the interconnectedness, I can feel the non-difference. Um, and I experience it many times. I don't know how many are, I don't know how small, short these moments are, but they're there. And so, you know, my own practice, you know, as I shared last time, you know, thinking about connecting to others, I think the Eightfold Path needs more of my attention. That's a conceptual framework, a framework that I think spending more time on and just the meditation practice. And then the question is to, to experience the feelings. How, how much meditation do you need? And here's just a practical thing I, I heard um, in right, the, um, the various things. And um, you know, Mito's had a lot of good insights on you know, not getting caught up too much on being on the cushion, right? Like it's important to be on the cushion, but that's not the only place it happens, right? Uh, she's emphasized the importance of being on the cushion, but the importance of not clinging to being on the cushion because there's other ways. Uh, I heard an interview with Joseph Goldstein where they said, how much do I need to meditate each day? And he said, um, well, what do you do in the rest of your day? And I said, oh, yeah, like when I'm making breakfast. Like, wow, I can mindfully take this photo. Yeah, like I can just do all this. And one reason, and so all of a sudden I said, oh. And then like for me, it's been, to do that, I need to strip stuff in my day. I need to do less because I think this culture is always about doing more, doing more, having more in your life, having more. And right, there's you know all these great quotes out there about actually less is more, um, but that's not the way the culture pushes you. And so, the nice thing about doing this Dharma talk is writing this down because you remember these insights you had. Like I had that that summer, and I was really pushing this way, but then the last month has been busier. And I sort of moved away from it. And you're like, oh yeah, like Summer John. He had a better plan than this time to go back to Summer John. Right? And so anyway, thank you for this opportunity to talk and remember what it is that it, that's something else we might have talked about is like the importance of just remembering. Uh, you don't have to learn new stuff, it's just remembering the stuff you already have. So this has been a great opportunity to remember. And uh, I hope I remember tomorrow.
And the day after that, <laughs> and the moment after this, and the moment after that. We have plenty of time for questions, discussions.